Welcome to this conversation. My guest today is Reverend Paul C. And Paul C. is the author of a book that relates to the season we're in. It's Christmas. And he is co-author, actually, of a book called From Heaven to Earth Christmas. And it is for new believers, old believers, and non-believers. So it's going to be very timely and very interesting. Welcome to this conversation, Paul C. Thank you for having me. So the book is called From Heaven to Earth Christmas. You have a co-author. How did this book come about? This book came about uh, my friend, Will Cantrell. He was my roommate at Emory and Henry College. And then for two years uh, of our three years of seminary before he got married. And when he got married, I had to move out. Uh, but uh, we went to Duke Divinity School after that. He had written a, another book. The book that he'd written before was a it's about a fairly controversial topic surrounding the potential split within the United Methodist Church. And so he said, I'd like to write on something a little happier, like Christmas. But the more we talked about it, uh, the more it seemed like a good idea. And so, and said, would you like to do that? And I said, uh, sure. So we, uh, we spent about a year and a half, I guess, working on the, the book. It came out in uh, the fall of 2019. That's the, that's the not terribly interesting story about <laughs> how the book well, came to be. But it sounds like good friends and you had a lot in common. Let's have you just give us kind of the overview of this is all about Christmas, the Christmas mm -hmm. story. Yes. Just give us a quick rundown on the Christmas story. Well, what we wanted to do was th there's 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 plenty of, of Advent and Christmas studies and books that have been uh, published over the years. Um, so the in some ways, the, it is a good question. Why? Why one more? Um, but there was there were several themes that we wanted to to touch on, um, especially related to how the biblical material was presented. And the subtitle says a lot. So for new believers, old believers, and non-believers, we wanted to, to put a book out there that for someone who was new to the faith or might, might not even consider themselves a Christian yet, but had, had, was interested in, in faith, uh, would, would find um, a friendly conversation partner, not judgment, um, not a, a wagging of the finger, but just an invitation to, to a conversation in a non-threatening way. Old believers, people who uh, have spent their whole life in, their whole life in church, um, but maybe looking to go deeper, maybe to see something they hadn't seen before, hear something in a, in a fresh way. And then, and then non-believers, people who really are skeptical, um, but, but again, just to be um, good conversation partners with people who have honest questions. And uh, I, I've, I've grown a lot of years in conversation with such people and really myself in times where I've been given the space and the freedom to just ask whatever, ask hard questions, uh, that's when I've grown the most. And, um, and so we, that, that was it in a nutshell, what we wanted to offer. Um, drawing on, you know, at that point, about 15, 16 years of pastoral work and conversations and sermons and Bible studies. Um, so that, that's kind of the background on that. All right. If you're in the pulpit and it's Christmas and you say, let's review this story that became <laughs> the center of a religion that's one of the largest on the planet. And what are the basics of the Christmas story? Well, so one of the things that it's important to point out um, is which which story. So in, in the New Testament, we have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and two of the Gospels have what we, what we would call a Christmas story, a birth narrative. Uh, Mark and John do not. They each talk about the, 
the beginnings of Jesus in a different way. Mark with Mark, Jesus comes on the scene as an adult, and the same in John. Although John backs the camera up to sort of this cosmic beginning, uh, sort of riffing on Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Um, but it's Matthew and Luke that give us stories about the birth of Jesus. Um, and so that, that's one of the important things I like to point out when, when I get to discuss the, the quote Christmas story uh, is you have two quite different accounts of Jesus' birth in uh, Matthew and Luke. So that's, that's one thing to say uh, in response to that. I can... All right. The story is Bethlehem. Yeah, both now both Gospels um, tell us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Uh, both Gospels tell us that Jesus was born to Mary and Joseph and that uh, uh, that Mary became pregnant miraculously through the Holy Spirit. Um, and both tell us that uh, that, th- that this birth um, uh, shook the world and uh, was was foretold by angels and accompanied by other miraculous signs. But uh, in their own way, they have, a, they have a surprising twist. So in, in Luke's account, the, the birth of the Messiah, the new king, um, doesn't take place in a palace. Doesn't even take place at the nicest hospital in town. It takes place in a barn. The first people to visit, uh, not the mayor of Bethlehem, it's shepherds who were working the night shift. Um, and I think that that's an important part of the story. In Matthew, the people that come to visit are, uh, we call them wise men, magi, they're astrologers, they're, they're, they're palm readers, they're, they're, uh, they're, they're, they're strange people, and uh, they represent the Gentiles, the outsider, the, uh, the people who um, were not a part of the covenant of Israel being invited in. So uh, in, in both of, of the Gospels, you have an emphasis on the outsider, an emphasis on the lowly and the forgotten um, so that's that's one of the key uh, the key things, and I think we bring that out in the book. So this king is born in humble circumstances, and you said that the magi were astrologers. Mm-hmm. We think of I think of the wise men. Is uh-huh, that uh-huh. a misnomer? Well, wise men is a, is an English translation for the Greek word magi. So magi, um, if you if you look at M A G M A G I. It looks like the word magic, and that's there's a reason for that. Sometimes that word in the new, in the New Testament Greek is used for people who are magicians. So um, tradition has identified them as kings, but but they they there's nothing in the the text that identifies them as kings. And in fact, we don't know how many there were. Uh, we're we we talk about the three wise men because of the three gifts: gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But there could have just been two. There could have been five. Matthew, uh, it's in Matthew two one through twelve. Doesn't say. Um, and the reason I talk about them being astrologers, that's not my own insight. That's uh, lots of scholars have said that, but they are drawn to Bethlehem by following the star. And so they, they seem to be people who uh, were familiar with with astrology and looking at the sky for different signs. And something about this particular star uh, spoke to them in a way. And uh, and so this cosmic phenomenon drew them to Bethlehem and to the Holy Family. Why do you suppose that only two of the Gospels talk about the birth? That's a really good question. And the short answer is I don't know, but I love to speculate. Um, I think that um, for, well, there's different ways you could approach that. One, one potential answer is that Mark and John simply didn't know the stories. 
and and so they they just they didn't tell it because they didn't know it the more interesting and speculative question is did they know of those traditions and decide not to pass them along and I, and I, we just don't know the answer to that um it doesn't fit uh, their, their gospels are complete without them and so uh, i guess maybe one way you could put it is both of them were able to convey uh very beautifully the the message of the story of the life death and resurrection of jesus without um telling that and truth be told in matthew and luke once we sort of leave the story of the nativity behind it's not referenced again um no no reference is made to uh the circumstances around jesus's birth uh, I believe Bethlehem is mentioned once. His parents are mentioned here and there, but but the actual uh, details of the nativity story are never mentioned again. So it's very interesting that there's this story of this lowly birth, not palaces mm-hmm. and fancy, rich surroundings. How then did did the story become so well known that that this became one of the biggest religions in the world? I think one person that's important to talk about with that in relation to that question is the apostle paul the apostle paul and his letters predate the gospels we think so the, the the letters are older than the gospels and if you read the letters of paul he either again either doesn't know or doesn't pass along stories about jesus in his letters it, it, you can see points where um it would be very convenient for him to say, oh, remember this story about Jesus? He doesn't do that. He seems to have what we might consider a fairly bare bones understanding of the good news. Jesus came. He mentions his birth a couple of, he was born of a woman, or but that, that's about it. But Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose, and the spirit is with us. That's, that's sort of Paul's gospel. Uh, Jesus came, died, rose, spirit is with us and with that very simple gospel he started a lot of churches and he started a movement it was still very very small though 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 experiencing some some still miraculous growth um until the 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 time when emperor constantine um made christianity the the official religion of the roman empire and after that it could be argued that it was that that change that allowed Christianity to, to spread the way that it did. Well, that's pretty big when it's declared the official religion of the, of the Roman Empire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of your chapters is entitled A Virgin Birth, Seriously? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want you to talk a little bit more about that. It's so interesting because, as you point out in the book, we all learn it how babies are made and uh, yeah. it takes two and it takes a man. But in this case, we're told <laughs> that Jesus was born of a virgin. How important is that to the centrality of the religion? Do you have to believe that it was truly, literally a virgin birth, no sex involved? It, it is an important part of our faith. In, in my tradition and in others we we say the apostles creed or the nicene creed every week in worship and we affirm jesus was born of the virgin mary so it's not it's not an afterthought one of the things that we mention in the book is to us it's not about 
sex or the absence of sex, at least to the extent that it means that oh, sex is this bad thing that, that God couldn't be involved in. And unfortunately, I think some people have seen it that way, that somehow if Jesus had, <laughs> had been conceived the old fashioned way, that that would have somehow tainted him. But I don't think that's that's the point. I think that the, you know, the, the angel says to Mary, for nothing will be impossible with God. And, and, and that he, he doesn't explain it. Gabriel doesn't explain it, but he says the Holy Spirit will come about upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So it's, it's about the, the miraculous, uh, life-giving, life-creating power of God. Where we come down at the end of the chapter, people have made such a deal about the virgin birth that, and about an awful lot around uh, doctrine, which, which I'm all for doctrine. Uh, but they'll say, well, it, you, you have to believe, you have to believe it, you have to believe it all the time, you can't doubt it. And so we sort of wrestle with that question and t- tease throughout the, the chapter, do you have to believe it? Where we came down was, let's look at it differently. It's not that we have to believe it, it's that we get to. We're invited to believe it. It's, it's, it's a gift. It's not something to be beaten over the head with. It's, it's a gift to embrace the miraculous and the impossible. This is a fascinating topic for many reasons, but another thing that I wanted to ask you about is, you know, the virgin birth, as you say, is is central to the religion, one way or the other, whether you choose to believe it or choose not to believe it. Well, isn't it true that there were all kinds of religions that had stories about virgin birth in their in their religions back in, you know, the B.C. days? Sure, sure. Yeah, it, it was not an unknown theme in uh, ancient, uh, not just ancient religion, uh, but also, well, probably religion, cult around various emperors. I believe Alexander the Great and, and maybe some other uh, people uh, of his rank, different myths grew up around them that, that they were uh, uh, born of a virgin as well. So in, in that sense, Christianity can't claim to be the, the only religion, the only faith, the only community that's ever told the story of a virgin birth. And I think to some people that is unsettling and frightening. And to some people, they're like, see, see, well, that's that's it. It's nonsense. It's just ancient talk. Other people, when they hear that, they sort of put their fingers in their ears and say, you know, no, no, not listening. To, you know, to us in the book, we, we address that. And I think there's no point in um, feeling threatened by the fact that other religions and other groups have have had that uh, that story, um, just like a flood. St- I mean, you know, the, the Noah's flood story in Genesis, the biblical flood story is not the only flood story in ancient myth and religion. So, um, we can either pretend like those other stories don't exist, or we can embrace that and try to learn from it. Another one of your chapters is called Jesus is Jewish. That probably is a big deal for people to remember and understand that Jesus was actually Jewish. So talk about the points that you felt were important to make on that topic. Well, it's it's an important and sadly overlooked essential part of, of who Jesus is. You know, I, I mentioned John 1.14 earlier, the, the great statement on the incarnation, the word became flesh and lived among us, but the word became Jewish flesh, the Jewish flesh, say that five times fast. Christ, as in Jesus Christ, is a Jewish category. Christ is the same word for Messiah. It's the, the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, anointed one. It's not his last name. It's his title. It's, it's a Jewish title. Um, in the Old Testament, Lots of different people are anointed. Priests, prophets, kings are anointed. So Jesus sort of gathers up all of those. And it's important to us, but it's, it's, a, it's an important thing because, because we live in a post-Holocaust world. The church, biblical studies, Western civilization is implicated 
in a, a, in a, in a in, in a kind of anti-Semitism that is tied up in sort of overlooking the Jewishness of Jesus. And unfortunately, in in that time period, and, and you hear this still, some people don't mean, I don't think they mean it as badly as the people in Nazi Germany did, but you, there was a, a tendency to read Jesus as if Jesus came to overcome Judaism. Jesus came to, to, to shed Judaism. And, and, and there's readings of Paul out there like that, that really the, the problem that Paul was fighting with was, was Judaism. No, Paul was a faithful Jew, just like Jesus was a faithful Jew. So for us to just tell the story of who Jesus is faithfully, we felt like we needed to lift that up because that's certainly not something that I think gets a whole lot of attention in Sunday school and in church. We, 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 we draw conveniently sometimes on the Old Testament or, or the, the Jewishness of Jesus when it suits us, but we leave it behind also when it suits us. So that, that, was, that was really important. And that's, that's been something from reading a lot of recent biblical scholarship and Christian theology that, that I think is trying to do a lot better about that. And there's been a lot of very fruitful conversation between Jewish scholars and Christian scholars. So I, I felt like that, that's something that's been missing in a lot of books like this. And again, new believers, old believers, non-believers, if you're new to the faith or if you've been in church all your life, we feel like that's an important theme to, to be explored. So we just, I, just the tip of the iceberg, as we do with a lot of things in the book, but hopefully we whet people's appetite to learn more about it. Let's go back and you just referred to the outline or the subtitle of the book, for new mm -hmm. believers, old believers, and non-believers. I'd like to get just a little clarification from you about when you approach this book and you're thinking about what is it that we need to say to old believers? Let's take them out of order. Let's go with <laughs> old okay. believers, the people who've been in church every old Sunday for all their lives. What is this book? What are the key parts that you think are important for them to be reminded of? Well, truthfully, it's it's old believers that I've spent most of my uh, nearly 20 years of ministry with. And when I say old, I don't just mean people who are necessarily any older than me. I'm, I'm myself 40, I'm old enough to have to think about it, 43 years old, fit that category. Someone who was raised in church never really has known a time that I'm not, have not been in church. So it's not just old as in geriatric, people who are raised in the faith. And so now this is a new analogy. So if it crashes and burns or, or if it just doesn't fit, one of the one of the things that I've discovered that, that I love about the work that I do is in preaching to a degree, but especially when I get to teach the Bible, it reminds me when I got to go on a few hikes with a man who was in a previous church that I served who worked for the Forest Service. I love the woods. I love hiking. I love being outdoors. But go into the woods with him and every blade of grass, every piece of bark, every dropping on the ground, uh, every leaf. I mean, he, he could just tell you so much about it that, that, that I might look at it and say, yeah, that's interesting. But he, he brings out the texture. I don't want to overstate my level of scholarship or I'm, I'm, no, I'm, I'm not on his level when it comes to his expertise in the forest and my expertise in the Bible. But I like to think that maybe some of what I do for, like you say, old believers is take people through places that they've been fairly often and try to show them some things that they might not have noticed, things that fascinate me. And I think we, we would do well to linger over. Does, does that help? 
Yeah, for example, what we just talked about, people who've gone to church and are just kind of forget or don't ever really fully realize that Jesus was Jewish. So you've right. just done that for us on this program right now. All right, so that's kind of the context of what you were thinking about old believers. What about new believers? What, were, what was the challenge that you felt that you had in addressing new believers? I remember at the time that I was working on the book, at the, the church I was serving at that time, um, in in Knox in the Knoxville area, uh, Seymour United Methodist Church um, had had a few people who were coming to the church who really had very little church background, um, and that was exciting to me. But I, I remember thinking, I, I wish I had a resource that I that I trusted that I could put in their hands that did some of what I some of what we've talked about, sort of led them through the, the first steps of exploring. The, the faith, the Christian faith in a non-threatening way, but, but in a way that got them the way I would like to, to see them launched um, and put them in touch with other questions and other tools for, for lifelong faith. And so I guess in some ways, I was trying to write the kind of book that I would want to be able to hand to somebody who came in and said, you know, um, every other person in this town seems to to uh, be Methodist, Baptist, or Pentecostal, or Presbyterian, but but it somehow missed me. But I want to know what this is all about. Can you tell me? That's that's kind of where that comes from. And then your third category is that the book is directed to non-believers, and you and your co-author do not shy away from the tough questions. I, I th- thank you for for that. Um, I, I realize that some people who are more committed atheists or agnostic or just just not sure what the, what they believe yet probably won't be satisfied with a lot of what we do but what what we hoped again was just to to say here's at least uh, an, an honest grappling with the questions that says yeah you've got a point yeah you've got a good question and i i feel like doubt is a is a part of the journey of faith i feel like we've tried sometimes to um, suppress doubt and express it and say uh, you must never doubt you must never question um but I, I think of the, the theologian Paul Tillich, who talked about uh, doubt as a part of faith. He actually said fear, not doubt, is the opposite of faith. Um, but I think that, I think he's right. He said that doubt, true doubt, sometimes can show the level of concern. And that was one of his fav- famous sayings that, that one has about that which one doubts. And it says there is something at stake if, if I take the time to, to doubt it, to dispute it. And so we wanted to take that seriously. At, at the very least, this this book would would show that, the, that hopefully there's at least a couple of pastors out there who who would welcome that kind of conversation and maybe they might seek more more Christians out for for and, and regardless of where it goes but that's one of those questions and let, just let you address it in this platform right now I mean I went to church my entire childhood I had a pen of being there every Sunday for like 14 years or something. <laughs> yeah, and I yeah. sure never heard this question brought up. I wish I okay. had. But you described it in the book as the problem of evil. Uh-huh. If God is all good and all powerful, why does he allow evil? Just kind of review your discussion of that point. Uh, the, the problem of evil is uh, is as old as the world. It's, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm not a, an expert in in philosophy, I did have Ed Damer for philosophy, and I took Western tradition at Emory and Henry. But the, the problem, the problem of evil, is a, a challenge that has been put to um, believers from from without and from within for, for millennia. 
And I feel like... Let me just rephrase the question and have you go at it one more time. Okay. If, how do you handle the contradiction or the, the, uh, the difficulty in accepting that if God is all good and mm-hmm. all powerful, yeah, yeah, why does he allow so much evil, so much pain, so much suffering? What, is, what do you say to that? Well, first of all, I just, I, I say, uh, yeah, that's, that's an incredibly important question. That, that, and, and I don't try to give an easy answer. I say, let's just sit with that. I think sometimes because it's such a, such a good question, such a hard question, it makes us nervous and we reach for explanations and answers that are cheap um, and that, that really, um, they, don't, they, don't, they don't satisfy. Um, and in the end, there may just not be uh, a satisfactory answer. In fact, I think if you, if you say, ha, I've got it, it's just like saying, ah, oh, I finally have the, the proof for the existence of God. And, and, you know, I think it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said any, any God that fits into your proof is not God. Um, so I think uh, the, the first step is just to say, yeah. And then I would want to say, what is it, what is it that's got you uh, thinking that? Is it, is it your own personal suffering? Is it the suffering of a friend or a loved one? And let's just have a conversation about it, what they've been through. And let's, let's um, not that philosophy and theology are unimportant, but maybe the first order of business is to let's just, let's just hear your heart and hear what's, what's going on. Is, is it the state of the world? Um, uh, let's, let's just lament about that. And speaking of lament, one place I really try to steer people who are wrestling with this um, is to the Psalms. So another, another part of the, the, the faith, both uh, the Jewish faith and the Christian faith um, is, is found in the Psalms. It's the great tradition of lament. I would, I think more of the Psalms are Psalms of lament or complaint than any other kind. Um, Psalms that cry out very straightforwardly. Where are you, God? Why have you forgotten me? Jesus himself prayed one of those Psalms on the cross. Matthew and Mark say that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so to question God um, should not be something that's forbidden. It's biblical. And so I think that would, that would be the first step. And I think we just, we need to take our time and not, not reach for, uh, for easy answers. Well, let's get back to the heart of the, of the interview. And the purpose of this conversation is because it's Christmas and the book is called from heaven to earth Christmas. Mm -hmm. So in a minute, what is your message? to the audience about heaven to earth Christmas. And this is what I want to tell you in my final comment. I've got good news. God is with us. God loves the world. God loves you. And God is not finished with God's world. Um, Yes, the, the world looks at times, both objectively and subjectively, uh, like it's a real mess. Uh, but God is in control. God is at work. And I believe that the life and the love of Jesus um, show us the heart of God. So when life doesn't make sense, when we don't have all the answers to the questions, if we look at the, the, the tenderness and the kindness and the, the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, uh, we'll, we'll get enough light for the next step. And, and, and if, if we can do that, then we can hang on 
but there's there's good there's good news and and i i believe that uh the death and evil and hatred don't have the last word uh that the last word is is resurrection that the last word is love uh, that's a perfect place to end the last word is love and that comes from reverend paul c co-author of the book from heaven to earth christmas it's christmas may the joys of christmas be with you reverend c and with all of our listeners and thank you again for joining us Thank you, and to you and yours as well. Thanks to you, and thanks again to the listeners, and please stay tuned to 90.7.